0: Today, we uh, call this message Ask Anything, and the um, uh, premise is from James, you have not because you asked not. And so, uh, we took a bunch of your questions, you sent them by email, and we're going to try to answer those today. And next week, we're going to be asking God to do uh, the miraculous. We're going to be asking God directly uh, for the things that only he can do. So I want you to join us next week as we finish that series. But today, let me give you a little context for the questions and how all this works. Um, uh, we took all your questions. We can't answer them all. But if you do have a question in the middle of the uh, morning here, you can text it in. Now, we're sitting in town hall, so don't raise your hand or nothing like that. We're not, you know, we're not doing that. But if you'll text a question in, uh, if we have time, we'll We'll take the question uh, and, and uh, use it. Also, there are a few of the questions that are PG-13-ish. So if you have children, we didn't want to shy away from those, but if you have children and you're a little concerned about you know, topics they may be introduced to, I would encourage you to take advantage of our incredible kids' ministry or uh, middle school ministry. Uh, so uh, that'll, that'll you know, give you an option there. Uh, Pastor Mark is, uh, has joined me this morning. And uh, Mark, how long have you been at Kingwood Church? I've been here 39 years next week. 39 years next week. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. So so, uh, we've got bench strength. So I asked Mark if he would join me today in case I get in the gym. He can can help and uh, bail me out. So... um, is that everything? We're good, right? Yeah. Let's go ahead and take the first question. We're on a clock here. We're trying to keep a timer, so we'll do our best. All right, the first question is, how did, how did Mark and I meet? Well, I was dating the pastor's daughter, who, who's here, uh, Ron Cox, and uh, we met at, uh, Stacey and I met at Southeastern. So I got here to uh, meet some of you, and of course Mark was here, and I got to meet him that way. And what's interesting is, one summer, I interned here, and Mark was my boss. And so it was a, a quite, quite an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, well he said, you know, be nice to people. You really don't know, you know, what happened, but, but uh, I can tell you uh, Mark was an absolute joy. It was so fun. I was so intrigued by him, and he's always been such a blessing to me. So it's a joy to be here today to, to share the stage with you in this context. So let's take the first question.
1: Okay, here we go. Is cremation a sin? Some Christians are okay with it. Others are completely against it. I can't find in the Bible any guidance about this subject. Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. The Bible says absolutely nothing about how to bury people. How to... The Bible says nothing about that. Now, it's... Somebody may say, well, in the Bible, they they didn't cremate. No, not in the Old Testament. But they did... uh, put bodies away in caves and in tombs, not in the ground like we do. So uh, basically, the way that we treat a, 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 a dead body is really cultural. It's not a biblical pattern. Here's why. Because this is a temporary abode. And when this body, the Bible calls it the body of death, when the body of death is gone, we'll be given a new body. Cremation is sort of like this. The Bible says you started with dust and you end up being dust. I guess it's just a faster way to get dust. <laughs> um, in a sense. Um, but now, there, there are some people that are very against it because they say it's, it's denigrating the body or we're not providing for the resurrection of the body. But here's the truth. The body that goes in the ground, it's not that body that's coming up. The Bible says we're going to have a new body. So I, I, I certainly... Everybody should go by their conviction there and not place it on someone else. The Bible says nothing specifically about
0: it. Great. Like you said, creation's not in the Bible, neither is air conditioning, but we, right, exactly. we take advantage of that in the Alabama summer. All right, next question. There are many people in the world who have never been given the truth of the Word of God and consequently never have the opportunity to consciously accept Christ as their personal Savior. How does this affect their standing in the eyes of the Lord and their salvation? Oh, so this is a missionary question. What do you do about the people in the world that have never heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel? You know, no one's ever told them they're in a remote tribe or village or unreached people group somewhere in the world. And, and I would say uh, God has revealed himself most clearly through the person of Jesus. So the whole deal about Christmas and Jesus coming to earth was so that we might have a clear revelation of who God is. He's in the flesh. He walked among us. He talked. He, he taught. He did miracles. He healed. He All of that. So God didn't want any misunderstanding about who he was. So he sent a person, Christ, to live as a man, God as a man, and show us that. But it's not the only way he's revealed himself. I want to read to you today uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So this verse basically says to us, God has revealed himself to us through creation. In Romans chapter 2 it says, he's revealed himself to us through our conscience. So what that means to us is, every person on earth has some level of revelation of God. Through creation, through their conscience, they look around and say, how did all this get here? And so my belief is that, that God will make some determination on their eternity based on how they responded to the level of revelation they had. Do do I think there will be people in heaven that never heard the name of Jesus or never heard the gospel? Yes, I do. Uh, But here's the deal. It It is much, much, much more likely for a person to accept the gospel and accept faith and accept God and have faith, redeeming faith in Him if they hear the gospel. So it doesn't take any pressure from us to send missionaries if we say, well, if they're going to know anyway, let's just bring all the missionaries home. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Hundreds of thousands and millions of people will come to faith because they hear. But how can a person reject a Jesus he's never heard of? She's never heard of. So we, we believe that God loves the world. So our urgency is the church we have to send missionaries all over the world to every unreached people group because when a person hears the gospel, their opportunity to respond and their likelihood of it goes way, way up. So that's our urgency of of sending missionaries. Next question. Okay.
1: If the verse, train up a child, is a command with a promise from God, why do some people raised in a Christian home not serve God, while some others raised in a non-Christian home faithfully serve God? I think it all goes down to Proverbs 22, 6. And you, we've heard this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that may seem like a, a sort of an assurance to all parents that if you send your kid to Sunday school, then later on in their life, they'll always come back to God. Uh, let's look, first of all, at where that comes from. It comes from the book of Proverbs. The, the, uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. These are a collection of Proverbs. That word... Proverb is the Hebrew word to mashal. Mashal means a collection of wise sayings that you can determine from looking at the majority of what's going on, general truths. So it is true that a person who learns about God as a child is much more likely to live their life in that same way. But we know that's not specifically a promise because it's in a book not of promises but of general truths from experience. Also, we know in Ezekiel chapter 18, it specifically says if there's a godly father who does what's right and loves God, and he raises his child to do the same, but the child chooses to do otherwise and be wicked, that is not his father's fault. That is the child's choice. So that's really sort of, sort of where we are here. Um, it also says in uh, Ezekiel 18 that if a father is wicked and a person's raised wrong, they also have the right to choose what is right, and God can save them and deliver them. Uh, Another way to share this is the word train up a child, train up that word. It's a really cool word. It's it's a word not used much in the Old Testament, tanach. And tanach is a word that means when a mother is feeding her child, her mother's milk, and the child is old enough for more solid food, Tanakh is the woman would take something other than the milk and mix it with the milk and get, give a taste to the child of what solid food is. That was her training the child to grow up. So what he's saying is, is if you will give your child while they're under your control the things they need to take the next step and grow up more and, and, and move in maturity, then when they are older, they won't act like a child. They'll act like an adult. And if you don't, if you just let a child have their own way, then the child's going to mature in body, but they're going to act like a child the rest of their life. So it's really not so much a, 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 a thing for parents to say, oh, you know, I, I did what was right. It's, uh, you know, I did. Here's the deal. Parents, it's a warning. Give your child what they need as your child is growing up, and then you're going to see the results of that in their future. That's really great what he's talking about.
0: Fantastic. Now you know why Mark's here. <laughs> All right. Next
1: question. Oh. Is it bad to be an organ donor? Oh. This is a new one. It's a text-in question. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it is incredible to be an organ donor. And here's why. The, this body, we've already dealt with it in the cremation idea. This body is a temporary gift. It's an incredible yeah. gift. It's a temporary gift. And if that can help someone else on this earth, I think that's incredible and wonderful. I do not believe that a person's sin goes along with their liver. <laughs> I, I believe that, I believe that, I think it's an incredible gift that if you're able to do, uh, I'm, I've signed up as an organ donor and I have no problem with that whatsoever. Great. I do believe that it's temporary, and we need to help people temporarily if we can, just like we help them with money or food or anything else. Great. Fantastic.
0: I agree. <laughs> this is mine, too. Yes, go ahead. Okay.
1: How, how do we come to know God's will? Um, Tell them. <laughs> what, a, what, a great, what a great question. How do we come to know? It sort of sometimes feels like when we ask that question, we're saying God's will is out there and I'm here. How do I get to God's will? That's not even biblical. Here's the will of God, that you serve him every day. Mm -hmm. When you come to God in faith, you're right in the middle of God's will. And the next day you wake up, you can be in the middle of God's will. I I go to uh, Romans chapter 12 when it says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means the rebuilding of your mind so that by that you can prove what is the good, perfect, excellent will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? Every day grow in your knowledge of the scripture what God says. Reprogram your mind from how the world believes to how God believes, from, from the emotion of the world to the faith that we have in Christ. And you'll be in the middle of God's will every single day. Yeah. There's no reason for someone to be out of God's will. We, every day, you can be in the will of God. It's, it's, a, it's a process, and it's a joy every day.
0: You know, I, I think about in the Old Testament, uh, and I think about in our own journey as we move along in maturity, we tend to think about the will of God in task, you know, this day, this year, this whatever. But as we move along, we begin to think more about the ways of God. Yes. So the Old Testament says the people knew the acts of God but Moses knew the ways of God, and so the the will of God gives way. That task orientation gives way to the the, the ways of God in time. Yes. Okay, next question: Why are people so rarely healed, even after years of prayer? Uh, boy, that, that's a that's a good question. That's a tough question. I, I've never heard an answer from anyone that that completely satisfied me on that question. So I'm I'm looking forward to heaven uh, because. I know that God will, will have an answer and we'll know. But, but let me say this. We do know that God heals, and we do know that God is a healer because of how he's revealed himself. Scripture says uh, in the Old Testament that he is Jehovah Rapha. The word Rapha means healer. I'm God, your healer. In the New Testament, he's given to the body of Christ the spiritual gift of healing. So, so we know that that's his intention uh, is to heal, and we know that the provision is uh, afforded in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and I've had examples in my family. My own mother, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, had some kind of unique uh, issue in her spine. And I had multiple doctors, doctors who were friends of mine, looked at the x-rays and confirmed what the doctors that we you know paid to go see said. They said, look, this is an incredibly complicated thing. It will never repair on its own. The only way that this will ever be fixed is we have to go, do surgery, go in through the front of her throat and go to the back of her throat. It's very risky. Do the repair. There's a, there's a good chance it'll work. It's not 100%. It might not work. It might cause more damage. It's risky. Uh, but it's never going to repair it's, it's, all, its itself. However, she never had surgery. I've got the x-rays. God healed her. And she's fine today. She was completely 100% gone. So, yes. hey, thank God for that, right? Yes. You. That's a, you can thank God for that. Yeah. Go ahead and thank God for that. Yes, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, yes, I know. I know by Scripture. I know by experience. I know God is a healer and God heals. However, uh, wh- what do we do uh, in this issue of healing and people that are suffering? You know, wh- what, what do we say? Why aren't people healed sometimes? Well, uh, I think we wrongly look for a formula, and we look for a a a a b c and d. If I do this 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 this, then it will release healing from God to me. And uh, God is sovereign, and He is the healer. We are not. Uh, we don't. We don't have the uh, ability to release healing other than God's own provision through us. So I would just say, um, if if we had the ability to control healing, we would be God, and we're not God. He's God. And so it's, it's somehow submitted to the mystery of God and the sovereignty of God. And, and I would say we have to approach people who are suffering with compassion because you take a person sometimes who's suffering a lot and who's under a lot of pressure and who's a caregiver and who... Look, I, I've got a lot of disease in our family that I deal with, and it is a, is a huge weight. It's a huge burden. It's exhausting. And if you're not careful, you can take a person who's suffering and you can put on them another burden. And they can get the feeling, if I would have only fasted longer or more, or claimed Scripture better, or believed God better, or if I would have done something more, then God would have have healed my family. And if you're not careful, you exhaust the person. What I would say is, if, if that's the belief, why don't we approach it like this? Why don't we as the body of Christ take on the burden of, the, of praying in faith for the sickness of the person yes. and relieve them because their, their time's all given for, for care and all that. So I just think you have to be very careful um, in, in that theology. I don't entirely know the answer, but I would say what's most important is that we believe God Yes, and that we have compassion. So keep believing God. If you're suffering, maybe the question came from someone Who's suffering? I just want to encourage you today. We love you. We don't judge you. We don't criticize you. I've had those questions at times. Maybe if I would do something different, you know, healing would come. But I but I don't want to ever get at odds with God about it. Right? right? I want to be able to say, no, no. God loves me and He loves my family. And I don't understand how this happens, but but I have faith. So let me end by saying this. There aren't two different kinds of faith. There isn't a faith that heals. And then a separate, lesser faith that just helps you overcome. Faith in God is faith in God. And the same faith in God that releases healing is the same faith in God that gives you the strength to overcome challenges that he doesn't remove. So believe God. You will move through the struggle by your belief in God. So that's why I say the most important thing is keep your faith strong. All right, next question.
1: Do most Christians believe in eternal salvation? Once saved, always saved. Uh, The truth is, the most Christians in this world do not believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. It feels like in Alabama they do because we live (laughs) in the middle of the Bible Belt where the main uh, concentration of once saved, always saved believers are about like Montgomery, you know, that area. So uh, really, in in America is really where that is the strongest belief. Um, That is a belief that says that if someone comes to Christ and they become saved and they came to Christ by their own free will of coming to Christ and saying save me out of their free will that once they get saved they lose their free will and they no longer are able to make any decisions about their relationship with God. I believe that is not scriptural at all. I believe God created us in his image and all of your life you're going to have the ability to make moral uh, decisions about your faith. Um, The Bible speaks very plainly that when someone comes to Christ, that God expects us to continue believing and have faith in him for the rest of our lives. Uh, There are if clauses in the scripture. I want to read this out of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. This is writing to Christians. See to it, brothers, Christians, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the faith we had at the first. Uh, That's called an if clause. The Bible has several of those in there. And it's not saying you're saved if you're good enough. It doesn't say you work your way to heaven. It says the same faith that brought you to Christ is this faith that, you, that remains in your heart for you to be part of the family of God. Now, I will tell you, it's not one of those things where, oh, I sinned, I must be lost until I pray. No, listen, God, God loves you and your failures in the middle of it. You keep your relationship with God. But can a person walk away from that relationship? Yes, they can. I believe sometimes we decide when people walk away and when they don't. We draw the lines. That's not our job. Right. I believe God's a lot more patient than we are because he does continue to call us all the time. But folks, uh, the once saved, always saved doctrine, no, it is not uh, a biblical doctrine.
0: Okay, text in question. This will be fun. Uh, <laughs> what does the Bible say about profanity and slang language? It seems there's a lot of gray area uh, this day and time. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know who called the convention on which words are bad and which words are good. Uh, I missed it. And and those are in part culturally defined by, in different countries of the world, you will go and say a really bad curse word and you won't even know it because you didn't grow up there and vice versa it will happen. So, look, I, I, I don't... Uh, it just wasn't part of my upbringing, and I never adopted curse words into my, into my language. It's a matter of conscience for me, uh, but I don't think that I'm better than other Christians who say words that may be, may be on the list or, or not. Here's what I would say the greater issue is, and that is your communication. I think it's in Ephesians, the verse that says, let your communication be seasoned with grace. Yes. And so I would say, does your communication tear people down or does it build people up? D- does the way that you talk glorify God or does it, you know, uh, tear, tear tear God down or, or embarrass God or make a bad name for God? So I-, I would just say in your communication, look, there are people that don't use curse words. It's like a legal matter for them, but man, they're brutal. They use it on Facebook all the time. They just r- wrench people in half, but they think they're better off because they didn't use a traditional curse word. Well, I'm not going to teach my kids to use curse words, but I- I'm just saying, I think the greater issue is, is your communication seasoned with the grace of God, and does it build people up or does it tear them down? You can parcel legalistic lines on, well, I didn't say that, and we have a whole host of Christian curse words we use now, you know, that aren't the the original, but they're versions of them. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know where you land there, but I, I would say communication is a critical part of the Christian life. And it is part of your testimony, and it is part of uh, how people perceive you and God. So just remember, when you talk, you represent God. Yes. So talk well.
1: And you know, uh, James tells us if you can control your tongue, yes, y- it, it speaks of the self-discipline you have. And people who just they run their mouth like all kind of—I just know they're out of control.
0: And yeah, and there are people who run their mouth like that who curse and who don't. Mm-hmm. Bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> all yeah. bad. Next question. What do you do when your spouse uses sex as a reward or as a punishment? Oh, well, well, it just got real, didn't it? <laughs> uh, okay, so the the con- yeah, you're, you're I'm sorry, we're out of time. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the context of Christian relationship, uh, all relations, all Christ relationships, but particularly in marriage is that we would learn to unconditionally love each other. In other words, we would learn not to try to control each other or to say, if you're good to me, I'll be good to you, or if you do this, I'll do that. That's not the context of of Christian relationship. Uh, The context is, I'm going to love you unconditionally whether whether you love me right or not. And none of us can do it perfectly because all of us are human and bring our own humanity into relationships. But I, I would say oftentimes when people use something like sex or money or maybe one spouse has a really gregarious personality and dominates the other one or one's very verbally skilled and the other one's not. It could be a host of things that we tend to use to suppress or to get from that person what we want. All those mechanisms are are damaging to the relationship. So, you know, I I think that uh, anytime there's an issue of control, that there's a fear somewhere behind it so I would say it it would be very helpful if you could find out what the fear was behind the 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 need to to control and manipulate that way and and look it it could be that the person is a controlling person that comes from some childhood fear or wound or something it could on the other hand be that they are intimidated by you and there's nothing left to control but that and so that's that's how they're trying to you know uh, interact so I think open communication, prayer, and, and learning to love each other in an unconditional way over time will heal a lot of these things. And if you can, if you can broach the subject of, is there some fear here driving this, this uh, need? So uh, that's my answer. Go ahead. Okay. Oh, it's a, no, texting, texting question. So our light booth is very active this service.
1: Should you stay with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you've already slept together and you're both Christians? Um, Okay, I've actually had this question asked to me multiple, multiple times. And I'm going to give you a proverb, Hmm. a mashal. This is what I have seen by experience. If um, If a person who's already a believer... And they violate that, um, that law of God and they commit sexual sin together. They have just brought into their, into their future relationship and marriage, uh, they have brought an elephant into it that will oftentimes crop up later on.
0: Yeah.
1: I believe that God forgives people sexual sin and I believe that God gives people new chances and I believe that God, we call it sometimes the restoration of virginity, I think the best, I'm going to tell you what the best is. The best is for you to have a relationship with someone uh, that you marry that you have not violated uh, the sexual lines until you are married because you give the enemy uh, area to be brought up in the, in the future for you. Uh, I'm not going to lay down the law of Moses here about that because I, I'm, I don't want to make decisions for people. But over time, I'm just being honest with you, over time doing a lot of counseling, People say, oh, it's fine, we're fine, we're forgiven. And then about 10 years later, the distrust that was caused mm-hmm. by that act shows up and it has to be dealt with. And that's just, that's the best thing to do with that one.
0: <laughs> I would only add this. I would say don't stay together if you can't stop sleeping together. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I would say if the only way you can maintain a relationship now that you've crossed that line is keep crossing it, then I would say... In, in the relationship for now yes. until some healing can come and yes. forgiveness. And then maybe there'll be a day you can re-engage, but certainly you don't want to re-engage like this. You're starting your relationship off, as Mark had said, with a lot of things you will, you will deal with later. All right, next question. How can we as Christians respond to the LGBT community and love and live by what the Word of God says? Is homosexuality uh, really a sin? Okay, to the first question, I, I, would, I would say we have to remember when we talk about this issue, we can't talk about morality in a vacuum. This issue is about people, about real people. There are people in our church whose parents struggle with same-sex attraction, or we have people whose uh, children struggle with same-sex attraction, or maybe your spouse, or maybe, you know, this is a, this is a people issue uh, and, and we have to take that into mind when we're, when we're communicating and how we engage this. A few months ago, I sat down with a friend, who uh, has struggled with same-sex attraction since he was since he entered puberty, and uh, so all his adult life and all his adolescent life. And I just sat down with him to ask some questions and say, "Hey, talk to me about your experience. Tell me." what you've been through and how that's been. and He doesn't fit the stereotype that we sometimes think. He was raised in a Pentecostal family. His parents didn't divorce. They were good parents. Nobody rejected him or abused him or anything like that. He was at church every time the the doors were open. But as he grew up, this struggle stayed with him. And so I asked him, how was that? And, And to be honest with you, half the lunch, I couldn't stop crying because he described the fear and the loneliness and the insecurity and the uh, rejection and the bullying he had at school and all of this. And, and as I listened to him, my heart, I mean, I literally, it's very moving to me to, to sort of unpack for you now. It, it grieved me. It grieved my heart. It grieved my soul, the rejection that he had embraced. So I just want to say to the first question, how do we respond and be faithful to God's Word? I, I, my answer is I don't think we figured it out yet. I, I, we're struggling. We're really struggling to figure it out. And we haven't figured it out, or, or I think we wouldn't feel some of the tension that we feel in our society today. So I would say we we got to keep working. we got to keep working on it because people's heart are at stake. Look, as, as I've come to understand a little better what people with same-sex attraction deal with, I realize this. In every case, or maybe nearly every case, I don't know, the, the person like the person I said, they didn't choose this. They didn't wake up one day and say, I think I want to be attracted to somebody of the same gender. They woke up one day and realized they were attracted to someone of the same gender. So what would you do if you woke up one day and suddenly realized that you had this deep desire and craving for someone of the same gender? What would you do? Well, that's sort of the dilemma they're in. Who do I tell? Who will reject me? Who will, you know, how do I handle this? So, I think that we have to learn in the Christian community. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't have it yet. It's not entirely clear. But my my answer is: let's join together in the struggle, because people's eternity and souls and minds and families are at stake. It's worth fighting for. The second question is: Is homosexuality really a sin? Here's what I would. Here's my challenge. Okay, I'd like to offer you a challenge. Uh, many of you who are, who are younger or grew up in a, in a very media-savvy, uh, politically correct you know, culture, environment, uh, this is just the hottest topic probably in the last few years in our country. And there's so much emotion behind it. But here's what I'd like you to try to do. Pull the emotion away best you can. And if you believe that a homosexual lifestyle is not a sin then I I want you to answer the question, what is your source of information on that conclusion? What information are you using to arrive at that conclusion? Let me me split hairs for a minute. I would like to say, same-sex attraction is not a sin. If it is a sin, there's a lot of other desires that all of us struggle with that are sinful that we need to categorize as sins. And so same-sex attraction is not a sin, what you do with that desire, that temptation, can be, can be sinful or not. But for those of you who say homosexual practice and lifestyle is not a sin, I just want to challenge you with where did you get the information from that told you that? Did you find it in Scripture anywhere? Uh, for a few thousand years, all churches on earth of all backgrounds have all interpreted the bible to mean that homosexual lifestyles are sinful. Now, the church is not the one driving the issue on earth today on it's time to change this. So who is driving it? Our culture. Let's talk about our culture for a minute. Our culture is more sexually dysfunctional than any time period in American history. Mm-hmm. We have nine-year-olds being exposed to pornography and sexual acts instantly on devices. Pornography is rampant. Sex trafficking is rampant. And so I don't have a good trust that this culture that that is driven out of control and sexual dysfunction has some insight from God for me about what appropriate sexual relationships ought to be. So I'm just saying if your source is culture... I, I would question that. I would want you to search back through the scripture and say, what do I know from church history, how the church has interpreted the Bible, or the Bible itself that would lead me to believe that homosexual relationships are good or normal or healthy or, or God intended them from the beginning? I, I can't find it. And so, but I do want to say this. I, know, I don't even know who they all are probably, but I know there are people in our church that struggle with same-sex attraction, and I just want to say to you, I don't condemn you. I, I love you, and this church loves you, and I'm glad you're here, and I want to encourage you to keep on the journey of faith that you must be on, or you wouldn't be here. And so w- w- we want to welcome you and say, thank God that you're here today. But uh, I, 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 I would have to wrap it up there and say, just make sure that you're not being drawn in to the magnetic emotional pull of the culture that is, that is screaming about this issue. Back up from the volume and, and give, give yourself an answer that you can root in Christian faith rather than trying to change Christian faith. Anyway, that's my answer. So, next question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not as young as I used to be. W- what do you think about people who believe in Jesus and what He did on the cross but haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, do they have a place in the Charismatic Church? 100%. Absolutely yes. If they don't, I wouldn't have got in. (laughs) Okay? So what do you do this morning if you say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the cross, but I haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit and I'm not sure what I believe about that? What you do, I hope is you stay. (laughs) We want you here. There's a place for you here. Uh, Why does speaking in tongues bring fear and uneasiness to me, and how do I deal with that? All right. Um, Say this first. If you were taught that speaking in tongues is wrong, you know, of the devil, wrong, or just a mistake, uh, you're likely going to fear it. We do fear things that we have been taught. If your church or your parents taught you oh. that it was wrong, we fear things that we are taught are wrong. I was taught that. You were taught that. Yeah. Did it make you afraid the first time you yeah, heard somebody speak in tongues? Absolutely, to yes. Okay, the first time I heard somebody speak in tongues, now the guy, to be completely transparent, was a little weird. But <laughs> I, I heard him speak in tongues, and he was still weird after that, but I heard him speak in tongues, and it scared the liver out of me, and I went home and I thought, I'm, I'm probably out. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to do that. This guy's crazy. And that's it. Was just how I felt, but it was very frightening to me. But but I want to say this to you: don't use fear as an indicator on whether something is from God or not. Because when I was called to ministry to be a pastor, I was equally scared. I was afraid. I was afraid, and I was filled with fear that I'm not called to this, and this is not right, and I don't want to do this. And I was afraid. But look, had I followed that fear, I would have missed one of the most fulfilling and joyful parts of my entire life had I followed fear. Don't allow fear to be an indicator to you whether something comes from God or not. Some things come from God that make you afraid, but you won't always be afraid. I'm not afraid to be a pastor today. There have been moments today I was a little scared, but on a whole, I, I'm normally not afraid. Okay, why is the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues as important in today's church? Great, great, incredible question. Thank you. Uh, because um, the, the Spirit baptism is the power of God given to you to live a victorious Christian life. I can't think of a time that we need that power more than right now. I, 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 I think because of the modern modern times or technology or whatever, we tend to think we've kind of outgrown that. Oh, no, no, no. We've grown into a greater need uh, is my view. So, uh, you, maybe you're not aware of this. About 150 years ago, there were hardly no Pentecostals on earth. Today, there's almost one billion. Pentecostal, and it's a, it's a historic anomaly. It's never happened on earth before. W- uh, one billion believers on earth are Pentecostal, believe in Spirit baptism, and are at the forefront of the missional work of Christ all over the earth today. So I don't think today's at all the day. To back away from spirit baptism and it also gives you an opportunity to be used in the gifts of the spirit and it also gives you an opportunity to to speak in tongues i regret the way that we've handled this doctrinally we've said okay if you speak in tongues then you got it i wish we would say since you got it you get to speak in tongues mm-hmm. because tongues is a phenomenal tool given to the believer as an effective uh, prayer tool a, a, a tool of prayer language. So. I regret that we've gone so hard that direction. I would say you a filled with the Holy Spirit and it empowers you in so many ways and with a heavenly prayer language that is incredibly effective. So anyway, that's that's my answer. Next question.
1: Okay. I catch myself constantly slipping away from the Lord. One minute I feel like we're close, and the next I feel alone. What can I do to break this barrier? Wow, that is that yeah. is the experience of a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. We've all been there before. I, I want to call your attention to these two words. One minute I feel like, and the next I feel. Yeah. Here's the deal. Uh, it's, there's a difference in faith and feeling. Uh, feelings are based upon our circumstances, sometimes our physical health, sometimes our, uh, the, things, the pressures we feel at the moment, sometimes even our knowledge and understanding of things. Feelings are not what we live by. Uh, We live by faith and by what God has said in his word. Uh, The Bible says that we are uh, three parts. We are soul, spirit, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. Uh, The spirit is the part of us that connects with God uh, perfectly. It's it's the part of us that, that, that connects with his word and what he has said. The flesh is just our, our body and our regular stuff going on, and it's fighting over the in-between area, which has to do with our feelings, our, our choices that we make, our heart, all of our emotions and all those things. And what happens is, is when we say, I'm going to trust my feeling over my faith, it causes that cycle, that up-and-down thing. Uh, there, are, there was a time I, I, had a, I had a brain aneurysm and I had a surgery. And um, during the recovery of that surgery, I had a very wild dream that I had been shot by a, a, a Hawaiian guy with a shotgun at the BP station, okay? I, I And it was so real to me. And um, I can remember, in fact, I can see it as if it happened. But, I mean, morphine has stuff to do with that. <laughs> but, but here's the deal, I really felt it happened, and I, and I asked my family about it and I was upset that they hadn't caught the guy and all this stuff and, and they thought I was going crazy and all this stuff. But you know what? Even though I felt strongly that it happened and I'm still looking for that guy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Even though I felt strongly, it was not the truth. It was not the truth. It was my feeling. And I have to learn to live by faith. And when I live by faith and allow the spiritual part of my life, God's word, God's word says something, it's truer than anything I feel. Yes. And I think there's no way to stop the fact that we have different feelings. But to live by our feelings, yes, when we walk by faith, not by our feelings, that cycle can end.
0: Great. Fantastic. Uh, there's a story in Scripture I just want to end with this morning. A blind man named Bartimaeus who Jesus was going by in a big crowd and he was heard that Jesus was going by and so he yelled out you know he wanted to to talk to Jesus get his heard about him so in Mark ten forty nine, 49 uh, Jesus stopped and uh, and said call him so they called to the blind man cheer up on your feet he's calling you they're like Marines aren't they I mean no compassion at all get up throwing his cloak aside he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus So Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You know, it seems like it would have been obvious what the man wanted. He was blind. He couldn't see. But Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the story always makes me wonder, wonder what would have happened if the blind man hadn't had, hadn't have come over and met Jesus? Well, I guess he'd still be blind. Wonder what would have happened, you know, if, if the guy would have never, you know, they wouldn't have heard him or whatever. Wonder, wonder why Jesus, knowing the obvious, that he's blind, said, what do you want me to do for you? But he did. And so we've been asking questions this morning, but Jesus has a question for you. What do you want Him to do for you? What do you want God to do for you? If you don't ask, He he probably won't do it. And I don't even understand all of that. But James says you have not because you ask not. Ask. Ask. So this morning, as we as we move to prayer, I just want to ask you that question as we end this service. What do you want God to do for you? Would you stand with me? And I'm going to ask our prayer team to join us here. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is Almighty God. Today, you're here, and you may be sick. You may need... A miracle. You may need reconciliation in your family. You may need forgiveness. You may have some really hard choices to make through this holiday season. And you need wisdom. I don't know what you need. But I know this. If you don't ask, you probably won't receive it. So with every eye closed this morning, Jesus is here in the room with us. And He's come close to your heart and he simply says to you, what do you want me to do for you? And the answer's up to you. How many of you with nobody looking around would say today, I have a need. There's something in my life and I need Jesus to help me. I need God to provide, to give me wisdom, to heal my body, to heal my family. Maybe some of you here have friends that you've invited to Scrooge, your family members, and you say, oh God, let, to, let this year be the year. Let this night be the night. We need a miracle in their family. We need the miracle of salvation. Would you just lift your hand and say, I have a need this morning. I have a need. Yeah, yes, yes. In the middle, in the back, in the front, in the middle, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And in the, and in the balcony, I have a need today. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you have an answer to that question? He has a question for you. So this morning, I'm going to pray and I want you to come. And I want you to bring that need to him and ask. And let's watch God do what only God can do. Lord, thank you today that you love us enough to take our questions. And Lord, you've given me answers to so many questions. And there's other questions I don't have the answer to. You've never given them to me but you've given me peace about those. And so, Lord, I pray for the hungry heart today, for the one in need. God, I pray today as we come and ask that you would do miracles, as we come and ask that you would meet the need, as we come today and ask you, you would fill our lives and our hearts in this city with the joy and the power and the presence of God. If you lifted your hand, I want you to come right now as the worship team begins to sing. I want you to come right now from the balcony, all over the room, Come on right now and let's ask. What
1: a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ my
0: Would you just sing that softly with the worship? What a beautiful name it is. Come and ask God.
1: Nothing <laughs>